All right, before we get started with this week's episode, I want to thank everyone who's been leaving these amazing reviews on iTunes and everywhere else you listen. So this week, I want to acknowledge Thea, who said, super excited, five stars, loving this podcast. So happy I found this. It's so helpful, and I appreciate your guest speakers you feature here. Can't wait to hear more. Purple Heart. Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, where we interview location-independent entrepreneurs that travel the world like a boss by being their own boss. Here's your host, Johnny FD. Hi, this is Johnny, and welcome to episode 198 of the Travel Like Boss podcast. I'm here in Bulgaria with Kristen. Hey, Johnny. And team. And team. Uh, So, we met where you can go through the backstory. Okay, so this was kind of serendipitous, in my opinion, because... I joined some digital nomad groups on Facebook, and I joined one of yours just by chance, probably because it's one of the bigger ones. And I saw that you were going to on the nomad cruise, and I had just signed up. So I think I posted something in there like, oh, hey, who's going to the nomad cruise? And then you answered, and I don't even know if I saw it, but lo and behold, I arrive in Malaga, and we were staying at the same hotel. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, that is crazy. It it feels like so long ago, even though it was really just a few weeks. It was probably like a month ago, right? Or less. Yeah, I think it was mid-April. And now we are in mid-May. So yeah, exactly oh one month ago. Yeah. And what's crazy is I remember replying to that comment, but I didn't associate who it was. And we were kind of offline for a few weeks when we were on the Nomad Cruise. So I didn't even look at it again until... After we went through the whole cruise, went through Athens, and actually decided to come together to Bulgaria and almost live together. Yeah, because I think somebody actually commented on one of my posts and it notified me. So I went in the Facebook group and then saw that we had already commented to each other like a a month ago, basically. Yeah, it's, it's really random, but I think the Nomad community is pretty small. And I think it's... These like serendipitous uh, meetups are a lot easier than people expect them to be. Like, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast are like, oh, you know, I'll probably never meet some of these people, some of these guests on the show. Or I'll have people come up to me like, oh, Johnny, I've been listening to like 100 episodes. I'm so excited to meet you. And I'm like, you could have just came to Chiang Mai anytime. I was there the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's so cliche, but it kind of is a small world. And I'm finding that out really quickly because this is the first year that I've intentionally tried to go out of my way to meet other nomads. So I started my year living in Japan at Rome in Tokyo, which is a co-living space, and then joined the nomad cruise, um, offered to give a workshop, and all of a sudden I have a few hundred digital nomad friends, whereas January 1st, I probably had a handful. Yeah, it's crazy. So tell us about your backstory because you've actually technically been location dependent. You've been a nomad for a long time, you are pretty new to this digital nomad world. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was actually one of my clients in, I think it was 2013, 2012 or no, 2013. I actually looked back at it the other day who said, Kristen, you're like one of those digital nomads. And I was like, what? And I started Googling it. I think we were on a phone call. Um, And I realized I was literally reading on the internet about myself, you know, about people like us. And it was just kind of one of those like epiphanies. And I realized there were other people like us around the world. But originally, my whole journey with living abroad started back in college when I was trying to pick a major, which I'm sure everybody can relate to the struggle of like picking the right major. And where did you go to college? I went to UCF, the University of Central Florida in Orlando. And I really couldn't decide what to do. I changed my major so many times, but I realized that the only thing that I really loved doing that I knew about was traveling. You know, I played sports and I did stuff like that, but traveling was like my number one thing. So I decided to uh, try to study abroad and pick a major related to that, which ended up being international business. And so in 2002, 2003, I studied abroad back-to-back semesters, and I was completely hooked by the concept of, like, living in a foreign country. And You know what's crazy is I took an international business class in college, and it never occurred to me for a second that I can actually live in another country. I think it was, like, one of those things, and I think it was the same with everyone in my class. We kind of just studied it to study it without ever thinking that could be us. Yeah. And actually, the way I got the first opportunity to study abroad was 
through my dad randomly because he got invited to some business luncheon and they were talking about a scholarship that they were offering and he got the paperwork for it and brought it to me and it turned out to be um, the Rotary International Ambassadorial Scholarship Program. And so I applied to it and it turned into a really long application process. But a year and a half later, they sent me to Costa Rica. And that's when I realized that traveling and living abroad was actually a thing. And then I did it the semester after that in Australia and spent less money because, of course, I was a broke college student. So I actually spent less money living a year abroad in Costa Rica and Australia than I did living in my dorm in Orlando. And it, it was just like no turning back from from there on out. And I could never get that out of my mind. So once I graduated, still didn't know what to do with my life, went to grad school, did like a quick nine month MBA. And then my first job, I took an offer to go to Costa Rica. And that was in 2005. I think if someone ever starts living somewhere where it's significantly cheaper than where they grew up, but the quality of life is the same or higher, you can really never go back from that because you feel like you're getting ripped off when you're back home. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's so crazy to think back at it. And this was, you know, before social media. So I actually made a scrapbook (laughs) of my semester in Costa Rica and Australia. And when I look back at it, I was living with a, another girl who was studying abroad. We had an oceanfront apartment in Australia. We were surfing every day, going to class at night, just like having the time of our lives. And we could afford it as 20-year-olds. So it just kind of was mind-boggling. And then I went back to Florida, and I was in a sorority, and I was a student athlete, and I was super active in school. But I was already feeling those initial Uh, reverse culture shock effects that I think a lot of people can relate to now. Yeah. One of the reasons why I'm so happy when things like this come up on the show is I hope there are people who are either in college or maybe even before that that are listening to the show already, or maybe you have a younger brother or sister or somebody that you know that you can forward this to and just give them ideas on what they can do besides go, go through the traditional college route. Because now we've had on so many people on the show who have either went to college abroad for free, you know, in some places in Europe, they just allow you to study for free or for really cheap or do this, you know, arbitrage where you can live in Costa Rica, you can live in Australia, or maybe even skip college altogether and just go after what you want. Yeah, I'm actually really glad that you brought that up because my younger brother and I, he's only about two years, two and a half years younger than me. We both went completely opposite directions initially. He became a photographer. So he basically went straight from high school to being a self-employed photographer. And I went all the way through college, scholarships, grad school, student loans, the whole thing. And we both are now traveling so much, but it was interesting to see the reaction of our parents as to like what they thought was acceptable. And they really didn't want him to be a photographer. They didn't want him to follow his dreams. They wanted him to go to college just like me, but it wasn't, it wasn't meant for him. And for me, my school didn't even offer entrepreneurship as a major. I didn't even know what that was. And I ended up actually basically lobbying the business department to create a study abroad option in Australia because that's where I wanted to go. So it was like just these two different dynamics. And um, just to show an example to your audience of like how you can take two different paths and end up in a similar place and how you can go into something really not having any direction and feeling really confused and just try things out and ask and take action and then see what happens out of that. So you just destroyed... A lot of people's excuse of why they can't do it. A lot of people say, well, my school doesn't have this program, doesn't have a study abroad program. But in your case, you just created it. Yeah, I I honestly like can't believe that I had the nerve to do that. But I think I just had nothing to lose. And I knew I really wanted to go to Australia. And at the time, I wanted to be a professional surfer. So I was like, I need to go to this specific place on the Gold Coast. And it just didn't exist. So I guess I made a good case for it. You know, what's funny is as I get older, I can start relating to like the older generation where they don't want to get bothered. They don't want things to change because it's just a pain in the butt. And a lot of times when we look at like younger people 
you know, who usually are super liberal or had these, you know, crazy new ideas. And we might be like, you know, like imagine putting yourself in the shoes of a 50 or 60 year old dean or president of a school. You're like, what are you talking about? You want to move to Australia and be a professional surfer? What, like, what does this have to do with our school? This isn't a part of our curriculum. This isn't, we don't have a program for it. And I understand from their point of view, they're just like, you're insane. And probably 99 out of 100 ideas, you know, that 17 or 18, 19 year olds come up with are probably freaking ridiculous and just can't be implemented. But at the same time, sometimes you have to ask yourself, you know what? Why not? Like, if it's possible and it's doable and it'll be it'll be beneficial, like, why not make that change? Yeah, and actually, the the way I went about this was to look at it from the perspective of the school, which is kind of similar to a marketing perspective. You know, what what is it is it in the best interest for the client? In this case, it was is it in the best interest for the College of Business at UCF to let me do this? And the school that I wanted to go to was a campus of Griffith University. And the actual campus on the Gold Coast, which was the place I wanted to go, was the international business campus for that college. So it actually made a lot of sense because I showed them that my major was international management and this specific campus of this school in Australia had one of the best international business programs in the region. So I just kind of laid it out for them that way. And I did take a full course load and it was a lot of work, but it also was that like work hard, play hard kind of dynamic. I like that. I like that mentality of putting yourself in their shoes and saying, how can this benefit them or how can this make sense? Because I guarantee if you just went in and you're like, oh, I just want to go surf. The dean or the, whoever it was would have been like, um, then too bad. You know, like we have, that has nothing to do with us. You know, it's just kind of like the same as a lot of people in college, and I think this is why they no one really listens to them, is a lot of times when they have these ideas, they're just being selfish. They're just thinking about themselves. They're just like, well, I want this. I want this. You know, why can't life be fair? Why can't everything be easy and free? And they're not thinking about, you know, the costs involved or what's in, what's the benefit to the other party. But it sounds like even from a pretty young age, you were starting, okay, how can I actually make this sensible for everyone? Yeah, it, it was one of those things that, that worked out, but I think it was a combination of luck and effort and thinking, you know, just thinking strategically about it. And and so after my college experience, I was faced with job options in the central Florida region. And some of the offers I got were literally a walking distance from my college campus. And it was kind of a depressing thought that I would have gone through all of these formative experiences and gone to grad school just to get a job in a research park or an office park and sit in a cubicle across the street from my university. And so I, again, wasn't sure what was going to become of my life, but um, that's when a mutual friend heard that I had studied abroad in Costa Rica and spoke Spanish. And so he um, contacted me to offer me a job in Costa Rica. So that was quite a fortunate turn of events. And I, I did the work, I crunched the numbers, and I saw that on my starting salary in Florida, I would be actually living like a college student or even below the poverty line once I took into consideration all of my expenses. So I was like, okay, I have a an MBA and now I'm going to be still on the same budget as I was as a freshman in college. And so I took the job offer in Costa Rica, which was to help open a Coldwell Banker franchise. Um, so a real estate franchise in Nosara, which is a town in the Northwest um, beaches of Costa Rica. So I'm sure that the actual dollar amount that you were going to make in Costa Rica was less, but because the cost of living was also less, you can end up with a better lifestyle, even though your total salary was going to be a smaller number. Exactly. It was going to be way smaller, Johnny. I'll tell you, they offered me $1,000 a month, um, so twelve grand a year. But it, once I started making real estate commissions, my salary would disappear and then it would just be sink or swim. So still stuck in the mentality, especially after having come through the business uh, graduate program, I was still thinking, okay, I'm going to treat this as a gap year. This isn't real life. Like I'm not really going to work for $1,000 a month. I'll just go there for one year. Maybe I'll get this whole Costa Rica travel thing out of my system. And then I'll go back to my real life 
as a you know consultant for a large firm in the United States, you know, or Johnson and Johnson or some huge corporation or McKinsey. And so I go to Costa Rica with no money and I just had to hustle basically. I taught surf lessons, I worked at a restaurant, I bartended and I sold real estate and I went from a thousand dollars the first month to by the end of the first year like making six figures and still having like a good um quality of life nice and the costs were a lot lower there like what was even on the first month the first couple months do you remember how much you were spending for your rent or your cost of living um so they also gave me free rent for the first couple months so that was really nice they gave me free rent in a four by four but i actually have my budget it was like a written on a legal pad and I was so broke that I was budgeting the gas for the week for the quad, which was like $4 or $5. So I was really definitely living on less than $1,000 a month. Um, and I was walking distance to the beach and just, you know, eating out and things like that. I wasn't too strict, but I was able to afford to buy a car for $5,500 by, I think I moved there in October. I was able to buy a car by February, I think, of the next year. So I saved money pretty quickly. I actually like that $1,000 a month number with potential upside. Uh, I'm actually hiring someone right now to help me with the Nomad Summit because we're planning to have an event in the U.S. either in the end of August or beginning of September, um, either the week before, after, or during Labor Day. We're not sure yet, but there's a lot happening and I need help. So I thought... You know what? Let me just you know hire someone, have them come out to to Bulgaria where we are in Banksco. And when I was trying to figure out what to pay them, I was like, you know what? It doesn't. I can't pay them a normal U.S. salary, but at the same time, you know, I don't. If I like, if I paid someone say three grand a month or something, and they didn't deliver three grand of work, I would just be like wasting my money. And if I was a big business, I would kind of feel like most employees are losing their money and then they just kind of overall <laughs> make it back somehow. I agree. Yeah, but with like a small, you know, one, two, three person team, like we just can't do that. And I started thinking, I was like, you know what? I think the fairest thing to do would be to pay someone $1,000 a month, which is more than enough to live here in Banksco or in Chiang Mai, wherever it is, and then have a upside potential. So either a percentage of the profit from the event itself or some other goals they can hit or like ticket sales or whatever it is. And I actually think that creates the best partners or the best employees because they're not in it just for like money that they can kind of just rest on and be lazy about. Like I did when I had a corporate job. And I think a lot of people do. You just, you know, like, oh, I'm making this much every year, regardless of what I do, I'm just going to keep that while having just enough to to live and pay your rent and eat and just you know do normal things but not enough to go out and buy a car or do anything it really forces you to think hard and be like okay what value can i create what can i do to earn more money in this business to to make this business more money so then i get paid more money yeah definitely i actually had a similar idea at the beginning of the year which I still will probably do at some point, but I thought about offering like a base salary like that, like $1,000 a month to somebody, but then flying them out to wherever I am and paying for their housing or you know letting them live with me, get a two or three bedroom and cover their living expenses and then also offer them an upside like that. So I think that's good because if, if anyone out there is listening, wants to work for Johnny, not only do they get to have the experience of living in a foreign country with somebody who knows what they're doing and has a lot of experience as a nomad and as an entrepreneur, but they get to learn from, from that side as well. It's like a mini startup slash travel boot camp at the same time. Yeah, definitely. And uh, before you guys get too excited, I probably would have hired someone by the time you hear this. So sorry. <laughs> um, but what we did was I announced it in the Nomad Summit email list and in the Facebook group. And the reason why I put it there is because I wanted people who had been to a previous Nomad Summit to be the ones to apply for the event because those are people who know about the conference, you know, have seen it live, probably love it if they're still uh, subscribe to the email list. And I honestly think that most jobs are hired internally now. They're not just like publicly out there because if I just put it out there, I would have had hundreds of applications that I wouldn't have time to go through. 
versus now I just have, you know, 10 or 15. But these are people who went to the conference, who followed directions, who like took the time to submit in the application video, which most people won't even take the time to do. I, I literally had somebody e- like messaging me on Facebook three days in a row saying, I'm so excited. This is going to be the best. I'm working on the application now. The next day is like, oh, you know, I, I was out. I was busy today, but I'll, I'm going to get it to you. And then in my mind already, I'm like, if this person can't take out their phone and spend two minutes just talking into it and clicking upload, like they're probably not going to be a very good teammate. Yeah, exactly. That's a good process. I actually thought of the same thing of having like video applicants because that definitely weeds people out who aren't serious. Yeah. And another person actually asked uh, if they could send me their CV or their resume. And I was like, no, I don't want it. <laughs> I didn't ask for this. Uh, yeah. And here's the thing is, it's it's crazy. This day and age, things like that are not necessary anymore. It's almost, I think it's a good thing for us because it just allows us to eliminate people, you know, and this is kind of personal, but with online dating, I used to think about this. If you look at people's photos, like a lot of people need help presenting themselves on online dating profiles. But at the same time, I think that like the photos and the effort they put into the profiles like can be an indication of the type of person or the attention to detail or things like that. Like if you post six of the same photos and they're all blurry, you know, I don't care if you look like Brad Pitt, you probably aren't, we're not going to get along. So it's just a, a sign. Well, I'll look at somebody's profile photo or their, their even their Instagram. And if the majority of their photos are selfies, I won't talk to them <laughs> because I know they're, there's probably, they're either very self-centered, narcissistic, or there's something about them. I'm like, you know, they're just too into themselves and their looks versus having photos of them doing activities, you know, like it's okay if it's a photo of them, like doing something like hiking or mountain biking or whatever their hobby is, or if it's a group of friends or them, like just, ha- they, they just happen to be in the photo versus like a selfie like or or gym selfies like all gym selfies that's it or something like that yeah and i don't know i guess you know what like maybe if i was maybe if someone like had photos in the gym but of them doing things that they're proud of like you know like um acro acro yoga or they're doing like pull-ups or like you know something that wasn't them holding the camera just showing off their face or their body like just anything else like and I know this is completely off topic, but it really is like our online personas really do indicate who we are much more than what somebody writes in a description or in a, on a resume or an application. Yeah, it's just it's just taking that extra effort to try to read and focus and understand what it is, because typically the person on the other end will notice that. Yeah, 100 percent. I like that. So um you went from working this job in Costa Rica to to what next? So I ended up staying in Costa Rica and Nicaragua and working in real estate for seven years. And it was just kind of one of those things that snowballed and one thing led to another. And I was really happy there, but I wasn't necessarily happy working in the real estate industry. I didn't really feel like that was my calling and I was just kind of burnt out. Um, it's a tough job in any country, but especially in a place like Costa Rica or Nicaragua where there's kind of loose regulations and licensing requirements and no multiple listing system and a lot of the infrastructure that we have in, in developed countries. So I decided in 2011 that I would leave Costa Rica and go back to the U.S. to just try to do something new. Um, so that was around the new year of 2011, and I decided to leave in July of that year. So I was like, okay, six months, I'll just work, hang out with my friends, and then save some money and and go back. Then in April of 2011, something happened called the Poker Black Friday. And so for people, a lot of people don't know what that is, but it's basically um, the day that the U.S. Department of Justice kind of shut down all of the online gaming operators that were serving the U.S. market for real money, poker, and sports betting. So like Bodog.com. Yeah. <laughs> and at the time, it was PokerStars, 
Um, I think absolute poker, ultimate bet. And so I don't play poker and I don't gamble. So what connection like does that have with me? And basically, Costa Rica is where a lot of the headquarters and the offices of all of those companies were based out of. So a lot of my real estate clients, a lot of my friends, a lot of my acquaintances were all involved in the online gaming industry. So prior to Poker Black Friday, it was illegal to have an online casino based in the U.S., which is why they headquartered themselves in Costa Rica, but it was legal for you to gamble in the U.S.? So I can't like really comment on the technical legalities of it, but basically the U.S. market is just regulated in a really specific way that doesn't allow for just national domestic online gaming. Um, so there were offshore companies allegedly using um, some creative and arguably fraudulent ways to process payments for U.S. clients. I actually remember, like, for a few years, all my friends, and including one of my cousins, became professional poker players, professional online poker players, and they were super into it. It, 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 it almost kind of reminds me of the Bitcoin fad right now. Like, everyone you knew was a professional poker player online. Yeah, and it's not a coincidence that poker players love Bitcoin, too, and crypto, and they're really into that market. Um, so I basically, I felt like I was the only one who wasn't surprised that this happened because I just saw it coming for many years because a lot of companies were just kind of flagrantly operating and um, didn't seem to care about any potential repercussions. So I instantly had this aha moment and kind of epiphany where I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to quit doing real estate and I'm going to use the culmination of all of my years of traveling abroad, living abroad, finding properties, helping retirees, helping foreign investors. And I'm just going to combine it into a service to help these maligned poker players in the U.S. leave their home country to be able to access their money and their occupation and their way of life from somewhere else. Because it didn't mean that you couldn't play poker from anywhere in the world, just the if you had a US IP, you were blocked from the sites. So I started like messaging people on Facebook, like, hey, I can help you move to Costa Rica and keep playing poker. And then one of my clients actually owned one of the biggest poker forums in the US. And they saw chatter on the online forums about my idea. So basically, they saw the need for what I wanted to offer because I talked to them about it and I was telling everybody about it. And of course, everybody thought it was a stupid idea. They were like, everybody in the gaming industry, were, they were just worried about their jobs and most of them got fired and then they all had to leave. But they didn't, they weren't impressed by my idea and they didn't think it would work. So I started getting a little bit down about it. And then one of my clients came to me and he's like, hey, I think you're onto something and we want to help you and we want to help the people on our forum. We want to help you. We want to help the industry. And so we partnered up and launched a service called Poker Refugees in August of 2011. And I'm still doing it today. And now it's gone from just helping Americans move to Costa Rica to helping people from like 20, 25 countries around the world who are affected by regulation, taxation, or they just want to move for quality of life uh, climate and other reasons. So still primarily in the gaming industry, but that's still my full-time job. That's cool. I, I love the name, by the way. <laughs> and I think that's cool that you were offering a service that nobody wanted, but you saw that they needed it. Yeah. I just couldn't wrap my head around how were these normal people going to know what to do next? Like, How are they going to just pick up and move and know what to do because I knew all of the struggles that I went through for years, how to open a bank account, how to learn Spanish. You know, I had to like, I didn't speak Spanish when I first went to Costa Rica and now I'm fluent in Spanish. So how to do literally everything at the time, the, the Costa Rican telecommunications market was a monopoly. You couldn't even get a cell phone unless you were a citizen or owned a business in Costa Rica. So it was like all of these things. And I just thought, I spent years trying to figure out how to do this for myself, my friends, and my clients. And now I can help other people do it so they don't have to worry about it. Because I think this happens a lot in the digital nomad industry. People 
because poker players are basically digital nomads too, um, people identify with the lifestyle so much that they think that they have to become travel and relocation experts just to be able to work online from somewhere. And you don't have to necessarily climb up that learning curve. Like There are shortcuts to take, and it's kind of weird that people put that whole burden on themselves when they don't do that with other things. Like if you need, um, if you have an ailment, like a cold or a sickness, you don't think like, oh, I need to go to medical school to figure out what I have. Like you just go to the doctor. So I think that there's there's definitely a need for more people uh, helping people make this transition. And so anyway, that brings us to today, which is more of what I'm doing is helping not just sports bettors and poker players, but just regular people who want to do the same thing. That's interesting. I think that one of the reasons why we all act as our own travel agents is because it's exciting in the beginning when we're like, yeah, it's going to be, you know, so fun to like look at properties or look at whatever. And we always underestimate the amount of time it's going to take us. And in the beginning, it is fun. But I think after like the third, fourth, fifth hour of browsing Airbnb and like looking through all these different places and like we, we kind of just stuck. We're like, well, we have to do it now, but we stop enjoying it. And we don't account for our time wasted, like that we could have been doing something else. So I think if somebody didn't have anything better to do anyways, yeah, it's great. But if somebody had a job or like a business that they could have been putting those five hours into, or they could have been, you know, playing poker or doing whatever, and they'd rather be doing that, or they could have made more money doing that, then it makes absolute sense just to hire someone and have them take care of the, the headaches. Yeah, and that's what poker players know the value of their time so well because they work for so many hours a day. And so they just really value their time. And they know that if they're not playing poker, they could be studying hands or they could be getting poker coaching or something like that. And um, so they just have a really unique perspective on that that I think uh, regular people would, would benefit from who haven't been in that really intense gaming or online poker environment. That's cool. I really like that you've niched down to instead of just starting with like, oh, I'm going to be a travel agent or I'm going to be, a you know, just um relocation agent for everybody. I really think it's nice. It's a smart business move to start at a niche and then slowly grow from there. Yeah, that's been really helpful. Just it's been very fulfilling because I've become really good friends with a lot of my clients. I've relocated about a hundred people per year, so it's not a huge volume of people, and I'm able to actually get to know all of their stories. And I mean, I'm kind of responsible for like their lives, helping them move to a different place. So, um, yeah, it's really fulfilling, and it's helped me learn all of the the needs of that group of people. And I think that's applicable to others as well. And um, for people who who think it's no big deal, and they like to just book their own travel themselves, like I get it because I love traveling. And hey, look, I do this for a living. I book travel. Um, but I would challenge all of your listeners to use a time tracking software for one year, if you want to wait that long. And just every time that you any time you spend booking a flight or planning travel or looking at Airbnbs, just track it like you would any job if you're a freelancer and then see at the end of the year if it was worth it. And could you have been building a new skill during that time or spending quality time with your friends and family or what else could you be doing then? And, you know, just think about it. Yeah. Or even like an easy hack would be, you know, ask yourself beforehand, how much time are you willing to spend on this? And so, or how much time do you think it's going to take? So you're like, oh, I'm just going to book an easy flight. It's going to take me 20 minutes. Set a 20 minute timer. And then if that 20 minute timer goes off and you're nowhere closer to booking that flight, if you're not entering your credit card for information, then, and you're getting frustrated, you're not enjoying it anymore, then just have someone else do it. Reality check. Yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. So Costa Rica today in 2018, are people still moving there? Is that somewhere you would live again? Like what are the pros and cons of it? Yeah, I definitely still move people there. It's one of our most popular locations. I would say Canada, Costa Rica, and Mexico are still our top locations because about half of my clients are American and they still want to be a bit close to home. Um, and then it's a nice place because of the climate, the beaches, the internet has gotten really good in recent years, so it's a lot more of a viable option than it was when I first went there in 
2002 and was like checking email from internet cafes and calling from pay phones. <laughs> um, so I personally don't see myself living there again. I still go there once a year. Last year I was there for about six weeks. So I still like to go and visit, but I've spent so many years there. I'm really more interested in seeing other places now. Okay. I like that. So what, what about, I guess Canada, people would go there because it's very similar to the U.S., but it's not in the U.S.? Yeah. And then Mexico, what do people like about that besides the time zone? Um, we have a lot of clients from, um, if they're on the East Coast, it's only like from Florida, for example, from the Southeast, it's only a two-hour flight to Cancun. And uh, from California and Vegas, they can actually drive to Mexico. So they can drive to uh, Rosarito, Tijuana, places like that. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. So I've actually driven to both Tijuana and Rosarito before, but it wasn't to live. It was just uh, to party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that too. And actually, uh, Playa del Carmen, I don't know if you have any clients there, but that's a nomad future nomad hotspot that's developing that I really want to check out. Yeah. So all of the flights... There's no actual airport in Playa del Carmen. So you fly into Cancun and then it's a really easy drive on a paved road, Playa del Carmen, like 30 minutes or so. Um, so there's actually usually around 80 or 100 poker players there living there at any given moment. And I know Tulum is popular also, but I think the better infrastructure is in Playa del Carmen. It, I would recommend it to a lot of people because it has a lot of the things that make our lifestyle easier. Stuff is open really late or 24 hours and it's super walkable and you don't need a car. And um, there's lots of coffee shops and now there's some co-working spaces and things popping up. And Mexican food, which I love. Yeah, and tacos and tequila everywhere. But the only downside is that it can get really hot and the weather is fickle because, you know, it's tropical. And um, there's just a lot of tourists and cruise ships and things. So... You got to be really focused and like stay in the zone if you're going there to work. Yeah, I think that's the honestly the only thing that's been stopping me from really thinking I would love it is I don't want to live in a port city where cruise shippers just like come in for four hours and walk around like zombie idiots because that's kind of what we did, you know, and like that's not the type of person I like to be like I think someone literally graffitied on the wall at one of the port stops. They wrote travel over tourism. And what that meant was, like, we welcome people who are traveling, but not we don't want tourists. And I think that the big differentiator is when you're traveling, you know, you are usually on a kind of open-ended timescale. You stay somewhere longer. You might have the option of staying a week or a month or longer if you really like it. You get to know the place. You know, you're there to experience the culture and the food and the people versus when you're a tourist, especially as a package tourist or a cruise ship tourist, you're there for four hours. You're like, all right, I'm just going to walk here, take a few photos, eat at a overpriced restaurant, <laughs> you know, that kind of encourages more overpriced restaurants to open, which kind of ruins it for the locals. And that's that's kind of what I imagine a lot of Playa del Carmen to be like, is just kind of catering to those people. Yeah, especially now that I've been on my first cruise <laughs> that you were there, I see what it's like to just get off the boat and go somewhere and then get back on by 3 p.m., or 4 p.m. And it's still super fun, but it's a completely different experience. Um, for example, when we were on the Nomad cruise for 10 days and getting off every other day versus when it ended, um, of course, we had a great cruise, but then we also trans transitioned into like more of a long-term open-ended traveling mode. And it was pretty cool to see everybody um, transition into that. Yeah, because the people were kind of just like living in Athens for a week. And then living in Santorini for a week as well, which is something actually I'm going to do for the next Nomad Summit, uh, especially the one in Chiang Mai, where instead of it being over after three days and people kind of just doing their own thing, I want to schedule like a island reunion. So like one of the islands down in, in Thailand a week later where everybody meets back up there and then like we spend a week there doing just like fun activities. That's a really good idea. Yeah. So thanks, Johannes from Nomad Cruise for the inspiration for that <laughs> i'll have to put it on my list yeah it'd be fun the week of january 19th is the next nomad summit in chiang mai it's going to be a few days before and then the week after and then some island trips so if you guys do come to that try to block all of january and february if you can but at least those few weeks and then the next 
Nomads Summit that we're going to do in the U.S., which we've been discussing the location and voting on, is in the Facebook group. I think it's called Nomads Summit Digital Nomads Worldwide. We can just go to nomadsummit.com and sign up for the email list for details on that, but that'll be announced soon. So for all the Americans, I hope you guys are excited. We're going to do our first Nomad Summit there. I'm excited. I'll definitely be at one of them, probably the second one. Yeah, I think it'd be fun. So let's talk a little bit about Greece because the last two podcasts, I was on the cruise in my cabin recording it, but we haven't recorded one in Greece yet. So what did you think about Athens and what did you think about Greece? Wow, I really was surprised at how much I loved Greece. You know, sometimes when you travel a lot, you can get not jaded, but sometimes you're not as excited about certain countries as others. And Greece is somewhere I had never been before. So I was totally blown away by the diversity of like all the different islands. They all look completely different. And we only, you know, scratched the surface, but the food was so good. (laughs) The lifestyle. I think Athens was a really unique city that I don't know what I could compare it to. It's definitely a little rough around the edges and there are some not very nice parts, but it's like such a cool blend of old ancient history and culture. Like I walked through the area where the Stoics like taught to people. I mean, of course now it's just looks like an old ruin, but I mean, it's just such an interesting blend of old and new. And of course people from all over the world because of the basically like the immigration crisis in Europe, it's a port of entry for that. So you kind of have a mix and some of it is a little bit sad because you see some of the poverty and some of the struggle that people are going to, but it's definitely a really vibrant dynamic city. And then of course, Santorini is beautiful. So first let's talk about Athens. I actually felt the same way. I, I didn't know what to expect. I wasn't expecting, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I didn't really think about it. You know, I think it was the same as my experience with Rome. And I think they're, they remind me of each other. And with Rome and with Athens, I assumed there'd be big, big, busy, touristy cities with lots of crowds, lots of people, and then I wouldn't like it. But when I went to Rome, I loved it, you know, mm-hmm. despite the, the tons of people and the potential to get pickpocketed. Like, all the downsides was completely outweighed by the history and the beauty and the, just so much to do, so many cool things to see. I felt the same about Athens, where there's... A lot of downsides as well. It's super rough around the edges. I would say probably more than any city I've seen anywhere in the world. Where like I walked down the wrong street one night at like ten thirty, you know, and I felt like closer to getting mugged without being mugged than I've ever felt. Like it's one of those weird places. And then two blocks over, it's super hipster and everyone's just hanging out and drinking and it's just like really nice. So it's a really weird blend of of the old, the new, the kind of um, sketchy, but also the history. Yeah, I would actually like to look at the crime rates because there's so many countries that people say are dangerous and then you go there and you don't feel like you're in danger at all. And that was a place that I haven't really heard anything specifically about that, but I definitely felt like, and maybe it was the area I was staying in, but you can just easily by one or two blocks get into the wrong area, but it feels like the wrong area and there could be police officers posted up with their police van on the corner for whatever reason. But then I didn't hear about anything actually happening to anybody well, no, while one, I was one there. One guy in the my Cruise, the very first day he got robbed. Oh, okay. <laughs> Scratch that. <laughs> so- I actually Uh, heard somebody got mugged on the road to Acropolis, but it was a tourist, not a nomad cruiser. So, and I could definitely see that happening as well because it's just kind of an isolated little street on a hill and you could just block it off, I guess. Well, what's funny is when I went to Ukraine for the first time two years ago, I I was walking through, I got dropped off by a taxi, like at one edge of the park. And then there was a bar as many people at through the park and it was completely pitch black there's no one there and in my mind i was like this is not safe you know there's no lights there's no one here i'm in a country that's pretty poor economically you know it's a pretty big city so there has to be someone here to rob me like it just would make sense and then i wouldn't i would be unhappy to get robbed but i wouldn't be surprised and nothing happened and then i moved into my airbnb and the courtyard is 
pitch black and the stairwells had no lights. And I was like, okay, this is also a great place to rob somebody. I'm probably going to get robbed. A month later, nothing happened. And I asked people about it and they're like, eh, no, no one really gets robbed. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's no pickpocketing. There's no robberies. And they joked around saying like, like nobody has anything to steal. <laughs> but part of it was also... I was at a grocery store and I bought, I think we were buying some beers, me and like two people. And we asked if they had a can opener or a bottle opener. And they're like, no, no, but just ask any man on the street. And I was like, what? So we asked the first guy, just like, you know, this guy in his 50s, like, uh, do you have something to open the bottle with? And he pulls out this giant knife from his pocket and he opens it and he's really like, he's like, oh, here you go. And I was like, this is why nobody gets robbed. <laughs> Everyone's carrying a knife, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) In case you have to open the random can. Yeah, uh, or bottle. But um, yeah, I think in Greece, pickpocketing is really, really common on the subways, especially in some places. Uh, I heard there's a couple streets where cops aren't, they don't go in without riot gear. And that's why you see the vans Mm. with like the riot gear set up. A lot of people say that like, there's two areas that are bad. One is the anarchist area, which I think are like younger people who are super liberal and they're just against the government. They're kind of like the Antifa, the leftists of the U.S. They, uh, you weren't, I don't know if you were there for, but they did a Nomad Cruise meetup at a bar and people were throwing Molotov cocktails, which were basically like liquor bottles filled with gasoline lit on fire. Outside of the bar? Outside of the bar at the cops. Wow. So this is happening while we're there. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty intense. I mean, I've been in situations where, uh, I mean, taxis, I think in a lot of places in the world, you need to be careful. Mm. I know that there have been things happening in Costa Rica and everywhere I've been, I've heard taxi stories. So that's always like something to be wary of. But um, you could also let your guard down. Like I was telling this story the other day, my best friend came to visit me in Vancouver, um, in Canada, and we went to the Whole Foods and her entire purse and passport were stolen off the back of her chair at the Whole Foods in the nicest part of Vancouver, like in Coal Harbor. And it's like, you could be in a place that looks really nice and safe and get robbed. And then you can be in a situation like you were in Ukraine and just come out of it scot-free. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, I would not have my guard up in a Whole Foods. No. And hopefully that was just a one-off thing that doesn't happen often. But I don't know. It sucks. Like, I feel I generally feel so much empathy for people who get robbed or pickpocket. I, I, I think I, I really hate people who pocket or just like steal behind someone's back yeah because to me that's such like a thievish kind of thing versus like i'd rather have someone punch me in the face and like rob me that way than pickpocket yeah it's so opportunistic and like i i definitely was carrying my backpack in front of me like walking around athens i didn't want to leave any being like open behind me because I felt like that was a real possibility. But the interesting thing about my time in Athens, so the first week I was there, I was sick. Um, Like the last day of the Nomad cruise, I got sick. And um, we had a really sketchy taxi driver experience on the way from the port to our Airbnb. So we had that experience. I was sick. I think I was like tired from the cruise. And I was like, I shouldn't have, I was thinking I shouldn't have come to Athens. I should just go somewhere and chill by myself. And I was kind of just in a bad mood the first couple days, but I'm really glad I stayed because honestly, Athens started growing on me so much that by the end, I almost didn't want to go to Santorini. Like I stayed two or three extra days after everyone left for Santorini because I was just enjoying Athens. So it's really a good lesson to kind of give a place a second chance and give it some time before forming an opinion on it because my opinion definitely wavered a lot. Yeah, definitely. I had a bad experience with my, our taxi driver in Athens as well. I think there was actually a survey in, in the Facebook group where like eight out of 10 people had a bad experience. <laughs> and what sucks is I think countries don't realize or cities don't realize that taxi drivers are their ambassadors of their city. And if someone has a bad experience as their first Greek person they meet or the first whatever person they meet they're going to have that experience or have that in their head for everybody. So I think it should be a huge responsibility for like tourism boards or cities to make sure the first person they meet, which is usually a taxi driver, is a friendly, honest, trustworthy person. Yeah. And what sucks is a month ago, Greece had Uber. They just got rid of it. 
Oh. And it drives me crazy. Countries that ban Uber are like, they all suck. Like, I, I cannot think of a single country that has banned Uber that I'm like, oh, this is a great country. And on the contrary, the countries that are proactive about regulating technologies like Uber, and I'm looking at you, Netherlands, are typically the places with super high quality of life and really good things, like really good characteristics and traits about them. So these are like Scandinavian countries, for example, Canada. So it's definitely kind of like a litmus test for how the the government of the country is. Yeah. And also they allow like cartels, like the taxi mafias to just overrun and just do whatever the fuck they want to do versus kind of putting their foot down and saying, okay, let's like, let's either completely allow it and let capitalism do its thing or let's you know put in some some rules but let's let's let you know let's work with companies and technology yeah yeah i know and it's hard to keep up too because sometimes like i think you you'll go to a place like i think actually canada did this where like uber was legal and then they took it away (laughs) and then i think it happened in germany too it's happened in a few other places but the bottom line is that it would be really helpful and like a positive thing for for governments to pay attention to those sorts of things yeah, especially places that rely on tourism, they I think it's their responsibility to make it safe for for people to visit. You know, or if it's not, like there's there's two places I can think of where I had such a bad experience with taxi drivers that it just left a bad taste in my mouth for the entire trip. You know, one was Vietnam, where they completely ripped me off. They added another zero and their money is so ridiculous that has like 20 zeros behind it already. Oh, no. And Bali, where we tried calling Ubers for you know 40 minutes, and the drivers are too afraid to pick us up because they don't want to get beat up by the taxi, the actual taxi drivers. Oh, they were doing that. Yeah. And like, you know, then we got ripped off by the normal taxi drivers. So, country, you know, countries like that, just like, they have to get their crap together. Or people don't want to visit, you know, versus the reason why I love Chiang Mai so much is I land, I get a regulated cab or an Uber, and it's, it's the same price from the airport, which is a very affordable price. I think it's like $6. They take you where you want to go. There's no hassle. You know, you uh, get like a monthly apartment with no hassle. It's almost like checking into a hotel. You know, you want to go somewhere, you can call an Uber, you can rent a scooter, you can t- take a bicycle that's, you know, you can use an app to, to rent by the hour for by the minute. You can walk everywhere. Everything's just easy. And you're like, oh, this is somewhere I want to come back. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. And I do go back to those places for sure. So I, I do agree. Athens definitely grows on you. And I can see why people like it, especially if I lived in Europe. I, you know, Greece is kind of like an easy place to go. I don't think I, I could definitely see Athens as a place where I'm happy I spent a week really getting to know and, and exploring. But I don't really see that big of a reason for me to go back multiple times. If, but I do want to go back to Greece to see all the different islands. Yeah. And also, I think there's a lot on mainland Greece that I didn't really think about before. But actually, on the Greek airline magazine that I was reading um, on the flight to Bulgaria, I was reading about a lot of really small towns and little corners of Greece that looked super interesting. So um, I would definitely go back to Greece. I would go back to Athens as like a hub. I don't think I would live there. And also the internet was not impressive. The internet was so terrible in Greece. It was like, I remember it was 0.7 megabytes up and like maybe three down or something. And this was at the co-working space. Yeah. The day I went, it was even worse. It was like one down and like zero up. It was like 0.1 up and 0.87 down. I was like, is this real? So Impact Hub, sorry guys, you gotta get your crap together. Like, I looked at their website and it looks, there's so much information on their website. I, th- I think it's too big, it's too corporate. I think when co-working spaces have more than a few locations, they become like this corporate, you know, thing, blob, and they don't, they're not paying attention. Like, a co-working space should not exist without usable internet. Yeah, and I did learn about a few days in that I think they have faster internet for monthly members, but that's just wrong. I mean, we're paying per day to be there. Yeah. We shouldn't be banished to this worse network that's that, unusable. That sh- honestly shouldn't even exist. No. <laughs> I mean, it's internet. Like, 
let's get like a usable speed. It doesn't have to be a hundred megabytes. It can be ten, but it can't be one, and it can't be three. Yeah, and the internet kind of like publicly at cafes and you know yeah. hotels and your three G four G wasn't that good either. Actually, the four the four G was okay, but it was. It was mainly just the Wi-Fi was just terrible. I, I got ripped off on the 4G. So I went to buy a SIM card and this guy at like a cell phone store just sold me the SIM card, but it wasn't in a package or anything. And I was like, okay. And I think I paid 15 euro or something for seven gigs and it ran out after three. So I'm sure he just overcharged me for yeah. what it was. And that sucks. And knew I wouldn't be back to... Yeah, and things like that. I think Greece is just like... They're just shady. There's some scams going on, yeah. for sure. And I think... The fruit. Remember I was got, telling you about the yes. fruit? This is exactly like the SIM card. I w- kept walking by this beautiful fruit stand every day in the main square. And I'm like, I really want to get some fruit. It looks so good. The guy had basically built up the fruit stand with a wall of beautiful, perfect-looking fruit to hide the rotten fruit that was behind it. So when he put the fruit into the bag, he was pulling from like the old fruit that was rotten and moldy. So when I got home and opened the bag, it was filled with old fruit. I'd be so pissed if (laughs) if I bought like rotten fruit from someone. I would go back and I mean, I think people like this is the why Greece's economy is so bad. I don't think it's they do stuff like that because the economy is bad and they're trying to make money. I've talked to people and they're like, no, it was like this before the economy went bad. And oh. I, I honestly think that is why their economy sucks. Like a mindset. A mindset. And, you know, it sucks. But, like, the fact that every one of my tax drivers refused to use a meter because they didn't want to pay taxes, mm-hmm. like, shows the mindset of people. They're like, you know what? I'm like, screw everyone else. I just, you know, I'm going to yeah. do my thing. Yeah, it's like super short-term thinking. I guess one of the things that balanced it out was how cheap everything was, though. I mean, if anybody listening is into like health and wellness, like I love smoothies and juices and stuff like that. And to get an acai bowl or a green smoothie somewhere in the U.S. or in a first world country is super expensive. It can be like eight to fifteen dollars, like go to New York and pick up a juice at a juice bar in Athens there like my neighborhood juice bar it was one euro one euro 95 for a juice like a fresh fresh juice yeah that's really cheap that made up for the rotten strawberries that i got for two euro yeah (laughs) and one strawberry in japan where i was before this could be the equivalent of like eight dollars depending on how nice the strawberry is so i've kind of seen both extremes in the past few months coming from almost three months living in japan and then to Spain and Greece and now Bulgaria where everything is like literally 1% as expensive as it was there. Yeah, I just bought two pounds of cherries for, I think it was like $2. Yeah. Like a dollar a pound of cherries and they're the best cherries I've ever had. And same, I think the same as strawberries. I bought, I think I ended accidentally bought five pounds of strawberries for like $7. Yeah, I mean, $7 worth of strawberries in Japan is like a handful if you're lucky. Yeah, and okay. So before we get to Bansko or we, we get to Bulgaria, um, what did you think what of else? Santorini, which is one of the islands in Greece? Okay, so Santorini, I've seen lots of photos of on on the good old Instagram, and some of my friends have been there. Some of my friends have been there for their honeymoon, and the one thing that everyone says is like, it's so romantic. You can only go with your significant other. It's so whimsical. Blah blah blah. I felt like anyone can go. If you're single and you want to go to Santorini, you can go. It doesn't have to be such a romantic trip. I mean, we went with a group of friends and it was fine. I think it's a super chill place. Again, not good internet anywhere, practically. But if you're just going to have fun, I I think it's a fun place to go with friends and probably wouldn't stay longer than a week. And if you're on a tight timeline, like if you only get two weeks of vacation a year, Maybe just do like a couple days there as part of a bigger trip. Yeah, I'll say three, four days. You can see the whole island. And for me, I stayed, I think, eight days and it was two days too long. Uh-huh. Even though I had off days where I just worked online. When I say work online, I meant like blog or email <laughs> or edit photos because you couldn't really use the internet that much. Uh, it was okay, but it wasn't it wasn't good. Yeah, uh, I was there like six days maybe. And I think I spent two of them working. 
Yeah, and even then it was a little bit, a little bit too long. I wrote a blog post. Um, it's called Johnny's Guide to Greece on JohnnyFD.com. Where I talk about like where you should stay, the ferries, what to avoid, things like that. So if you do go check it out, but I would say, I think your friend was right about not going there as a single person because I think it's honestly really boring. I, I think it's really beautiful if you're there as a couple. I think it's it was fun because we had a big group. But I think if I went either by myself or with like another guy or something, it w- I would have hated it. Well, I could see going with like just my best friend or something, but I think it would be way more fun with a group of people or at least one friend. It would probably be pretty boring by yourself. But um, like the the most, I mean, I don't know what was the most fun thing we did. I had way more fun than I expected there. I thought it was going to be like pretty chill, but we did a lot of things. I mean, people organized dinners. We we saw everything. Like we went all around the island. Um, one of the most fun days was the boat trip where we sailed to all of the islands of Santorini in a group and hiked the volcano and ended with the sunset in Oya. And then also the next day or the day after, I went with like five people and we rented um, scooters and mopeds and four wheelers and we just drove around the whole island and then we kept intersecting with other groups from the nomad cruise so that was really fun yeah so go in a group <laughs> yeah go in a group <laughs> uh so shout out to nomad cruise that's where we met and we talked about it a little bit in the last episodes but i wrote a full review of it, of it on my blog as well so you guys check that out and real quick why did we decide to come to bangsko bulgaria so I know that both of us were looking for a place to work hard. And I know you talked about in your talk on the Nomad Cruise, you were discussing um, being in maintenance mode and growth mode. And even though I hadn't really given those names in my own life, I could definitely relate to that. Like that really resonated with me because I go through periods where I really want to focus on work. And then also where I pull back and I need like more social time and just having more fun. So um, earlier this year, I did the ski week in Japan, which is similar to Nomad Cruise, but without digital nomads, just having fun and skiing. And um, I was traveling a lot this year, and I really, really was craving like slow down, focus on work, get healthy, take a break from drinking, and just go a place with a low cost of living, good weather, good food. And Bulgaria was definitely on my radar. And I think we were talking about it, and you asked if I heard of Bansko and I had not. And so I started Googling places in Bulgaria because I just assumed I would go somewhere around Sofia. And then I f- came across Plovdiv and then, of course, looked at Bansko and Bansko won out for the the many attributes that it has. The two attributes, <laughs> the co-working space and the mountain. <laughs> right. Well, there's multiple attributes, but well, yeah, definitely the views. Like right now, I'm looking out the window at snow-capped mountains with lush green trees and ski slopes and it's just beautiful here and it's super quiet the internet we have to mention the internet bulgaria has some of the fastest internet in the world and the cheapest and the cheapest and the cost of living is very competitive arguably lower than southeast asia i think depending on where you are yeah i think some things are actually i was talking to my buddy chris about um the cost of living here and i think if you live a Western type lifestyle where you're drinking, you know, beer, wine, eating Western food, you have a nice apartment, like big apartment or something. It's cheaper here, but I think it could match Chiang Mai if, like, you just want to live in a studio and you just want to eat like basic food. And yeah, here it's like if you want to have a normal life, you want to cook at home, you want to go to the market and buy stuff. Especially if you drink alcohol, it's it's cheaper here. For yeah, sure. yeah. So it's definitely meeting my expectations. I think it's a really good home base if you want to have a cheap home base. I, I don't see myself living here permanently. I think I would, it's too quiet for me. I think I would get bored, but I think it's a really good place to retreat to and get work done. And like one of the girls we met at the co working space, which of course there's a really uh, tight knit group here in a co working space with a lot of good amenities. And she was saying that she travels a lot from here and there's really cheap flights out of the capital of Bulgaria, which is Sofia. So, it's a pretty good home base and it's kind of close to like, you know, it's Eastern Europe. So it's closer to the Middle East. It's closer to Russia. Like it's closer to the Balkans. It's kind of in a, it's a, in a pretty good spot. Yeah. 
I, I, I like it a lot. And Mexico is about a three-hour bus ride from Sofia, which is the capital, where everything flies in and out of. Uh, I'll sure, I'm sure I'll talk more about Banksco on the next podcast or on the blog, so check that out. Uh, but so far, it's been quiet, nice place to work from. Shout out to co-working Banksco. I really like this spot so far, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me, and thanks for bringing Bansko to my attention. Yeah, so uh, if any of you guys want to come out to Banksco, we're here. I'm here until about June 10th, maybe a little bit longer. Stay longer. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how important I get <laughs> in a month. But uh, yeah, so if people want to find you or reach out, how like where do you hang out? Um, yeah, so if uh, you are in the poker and gaming industry, you can check out Poker Refugees and Sports Refugees on every social media network. And then the websites are the same, pokerrefugees.com. And if you're a digital nomad, aspiring or current digital nomad, my other handle is Traveling with Kristen. It's K-R-I-S-T-I-N. And that's on um, uh, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. And then I started a group on Facebook called Long-Term Digital Nomad Success. So you can request to join that and hope to see you there. All right. Thanks a lot. And hope to see you guys out here and at the next Nomad Summit, both in USA, Go America, as well as in Chiang Mai. So go to nomadsummit.com for more info on that. And we'll see all of you guys next week. Peace out. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.